This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Welcome, listeners. It's a public holiday today, but there is someone at 3CR right now who will take your call if you want to donate to Radiothon. And thank you so much to those people who are standing right there on this freezing day ready to take your donation. We've been showing films from the Transition Film Festival during COVID to raise money, and I'm hoping we can get the last $500 now just by you people, listeners, phoning in. The number is 039419 Please tell the people who answer the phone, why you like the Climate Action Show and what climate action you are taking. And I'm sure, I can assure you, we will read it on air next week. Our topic today is the media, the mainstream media, and why did they bury the subject of climate change when voters clearly wanted action? John Hewson wrote a scathing article called Monsters and the Rabble after the election. He said he can't remember an election campaign where the media showed such blatant bias. Sky News wanted to, quote, save the country from the mad left crazy takeover, quote, and they framed climate change as a left-wing issue, completely ignoring the fact that it is an important Australian issue. Hitan Joshi in Renew Economy found that while the legacy media deprioritised climate and the environment, on social media, it was far and away the most discussed issue. The community-based candidates like Teals and Greens, who door-knocked and door-knocked and door-knocked and met people and did so many community forums, ended up showing that they were more in touch than the big parties. And the big parties and the established media seemed committed to not really doing enough on domestic emissions, talking always about very unambitious targets and committed to not doing anything at all about the exported emissions. Even on this show, Chris Bowen really didn't want to go there. He said this will be decided by the market. On the insiders, they were asked the question about what about no new coal and no new gas. One of the journalists said, that's never going to happen. And it's exactly this sort of lack of imagination and lack of vision about how things could be so different that we want to counteract tonight. So I went to three community groups to find out how the media could do better. We spoke to Lock the Gate Alliance with Dominic Geiger in Brisbane, to John Grimes in Canberra with the Smart Energy Council, and to Fahima Badrul Hisham in Sydney. I also want to play a short comment from Christine Milne. 
She tells us why community radio matters. It's from before COVID, when I was in the studio with Andy. Hi, Andy, if you're listening. And Christine was commenting on the 2019 election, which laid the foundations for this recent 2022 election, which brings in a new era for climate action. So even though it's from the archives, I think Christine's message to you, community radio matters, the media matters, please contribute to our Radiothon Appeal. And I'm very happy to know that Christine Milne is on the line and she's the former leader of the Greens Party. You'll all remember her face and she's a true friend of Community Radio. So, Christine, tell us about how... I want to know what you think about the media now, how the media is sort of complicit in keeping us docile or frightened in the last election and yet under threat themselves. What are your? What's your response to that? Well... It's just incredible in the last election. What we saw was what we've known for a long time. That's the power of the Murdoch media, uh, not only with just the print media and the, the consolidation of power of the Murdoch media, but also the influence of Sky, the whole broad gamut of Rupert Murdoch's media, absolutely ridiculing, playing down the climate emergency, the climate breakdown. At the same time, we had fantastic media coverage from overseas on the Extinction Rebellion, on the whole uh, strike for climate, on Greta Thunberg. How to speak the truth, like community radio, we, we're not paid, we're not professional you know, people with minders or anything telling us what not to say or anything. So I think we give a platform to people to just say it how it is. But Absolutely, and I think 3CR has been fantastic and I would certainly encourage people to be donating as much as they can. Truthful, upfront and most certainly topical and current uh, for a long time. And if you want to know what's going on in the climate debate in Australia and around the world and what the latest research is and also the solutions, 3CR is where you're likely to actually hear them first. Well, I think that's right. It's the solutions focus that we have. Why do you think the mainstream media just doesn't focus on that? They never stop telling us how frightening it is, but that incapacitates people. Is that the game plan, to keep people docile? Well, I think it's also about the power of the vested interests. When I resigned from the Senate in 2015, I said then that I don't think we can win on the climate and social justice until we take our democracy back from the corporates who've bought it. In Australia, it is the power of the resource-based industries, the fossil fuel industries, and this revolving door between politics and business where you see people like Ian McFarland, who was the energy uh, minister and shadow minister, uh, browning down any climate efforts, undermining whatever's going on for the good, and then spins off to the Queensland Resources Council and is now out there banging the drum for Adani. So that's the kind of thing that happens in Australia. And I think one of the things that we all have to do across the climate movement is join together on a democracy campaign. So whatever we're individually campaigning on, whatever solutions we're putting out there, we also have to have a real challenge on national ICAC, on actually exposing the truth. Well, how? I know you're a campaigner first. Before you were in Parliament, you were you know, a veteran of many campaigns and I think you probably still are now with the International Greens you pick up. How do people fight for democracy? It's just so... I mean, many younger people especially who are just really disillusioned. 
Well, the first thing we have to do is, of course, get whistleblower legislation, and that's uh, not beyond us to put that through. We need a national ICAC. That's not beyond us to get that through. There are a whole range of things we can do and do them quite uh, prominently, and it will embarrass the major parties into actually adopting them. And even if the current government won't... won't uh, uh, legislate them, we can actually make it a big enough issue for the next election to make sure that that's what we get. I mean, I think people just have to realise that it is not just a straightforward issue of people not understanding how serious global warming is. There are people out there making sure that they don't. There are people out there who are creating and spreading fake news. There are people out there undermining the campaigners and we have to be uh, as good as we can be at exposing that. Mm. All right. Well, look, thank you very much, Christine. I appreciate you calling us and your long support for the community radio because well, I, I know you've got a history there. Thank you, and thank you to 3CR, and I do hope the community is generous because we need voices like yours mm. absolutely critical to the debate. Okay. Thank you very Thanks, much, Christine. Brilliant. Oh, this is good, Andy. We have a little bit of music. Keeping me busy. Yeah, yeah. it's good. And please donate, listeners. Ring in a few donations, please, because we, we have to make this target. We donate online as well. So oh, yeah. Do you want to tell us check the... Check out the, the website. The uh, so you can go to, I guess, at 3cr.org.au. John Grimes is the CEO of the Smart Energy Council. He is fully aware of the climate crisis. And I want to ask him today about how the media could do better to show us the solutions. I've been to the Smart Energy Conference every year and they are connected with everyone who has an idea, whether it's state energy ministers or farmers, hydrogen experts or big undersea cable makers. I've interviewed so many people from that gathering that it makes my head reel. But the best bit, I think, is the side event where people in the energy industry can get training and upskilling. So, John, welcome. Now that we have a new federal government, what changes are ahead? Well, don't, don't we all feel lighter, Vivian, after a change <laughs> of government? Absolutely fantastic. And, and so I think I think a lot has changed, just as I think, you know, the, the world thinks about, you know, um, the change that happened with the Biden administration coming into the US, where we went from Trumpism to, to really embracing uh, the need for climate action and putting tangible support in, in place there. So too, we are seeing the same transformation in our country, going from nine years of denial and delay of obstruction to, to a, a new government that understands the urgency of, of action on climate uh, and is putting a suite of policies in place to make that happen. So I feel like it's a new dawn I feel like we've wasted a decade and, and I felt like we couldn't bear to waste a single day more. Oh, and you have been in this for so long, haven't you? I remember all those meetings with Christine Milne and John Hewson and then the empty seat, you know, all those meetings. Yeah, and, and that, that, that was the Abbott government who were determined to completely abolish the renewable energy target. And, and in fact, Vivian, they succeeded because when the energy renewable energy target ended in 2020, it was replaced by nothing. So Australia's target to 2030 was 
0% renewable energy. Now, the modeling that, that the Labor Party have done um, shows that, that, that they will, they're on track to deliver over 83% renewables by 2030. I hope that that is an underestimation. I hope that we go further than that. But we do have a lot of work to do because we're going to, in the next decade, completely electrify transportation, for example. So it's not just going to be energy like we know it, but it's going to be an expanded uh, energy, um, uh, electrified energy system. Yeah, and this is what I want the media to know, because as we said, the, the government has changed, but the media hasn't changed, and they may continue a bit on that sort of, I think, quite ignorant pathway, gloom and doom sort of pathway, whereas it's quite an exciting story you're telling, and all the people in this industry are telling, if only they could have their head and get the right specifications. <laughs> Isn't isn't it appalling? You know, some of the media coverage that just has come out around around this stuff. That the latest push in the last twenty four hours um, from the opposition and from the Murdoch press has been, you know, almost okay. Well, if we've if we've lost the debate, you know, kind of around climate, then Australia's future is nuclear energy. <laughs> so this is just this is just a new way of delay obstruction. You know, um, coming up with with reasons why we shouldn't act. You see, Vivian, everybody knows that you can go out and build a solar farm with essentially a post hole digger and an Allen key, right? And we can tap into the world's cheapest and cleanest electricity. But instead, these these just just you know um, backward people. <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying to be kind. <laughs> these backward people. Uh, what, what you know? What, what I say? No, 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 no. We, we should be planning a, a, a nuclear power plant. It'll take 15 years to build, billions of dollars, and we'll be completely uninsurable. That's the way to fix the, the climate crisis. It's yeah. just another furphy that shows that these people are just don't get it. Yeah, right. Oh well. Look, during the election, one ABC headline said climate change is being buried though voters say it's top of their concern and the that was vindicated in the election and i felt frustrated because journalists didn't seem to ask questions that allowed candidates to talk about big solutions and there were a lot of them the teals the alp and the greens you know they were all wanting to talk about their big solutions what what was your response to that um you know the media during that last election in a sense, we had to take the view that that actually I, I don't care what the media say because this is a this is an, a ground up this is a community led uprising if you like and that really was best typified in the performance of the teal candidates. So people who are uh, you know really new for their family's future, for their community's future, we need to take urgent action on climate. Now there were other drivers, things like. Um, corruption in politics, right, uh, about the inclusion of women, right? There were other factors, but it was the climate issue that was so time critical. People knew that if we don't act now, actually time's up. So that's the thing that gave the whole movement impetus. And I think you'll find, Vivian, that this is not the end of that, of that, of that transformation of Australian politics. It's merely the beginning. People get this, communities get this, people are acting, and they're just not being fooled by the Murdoch press anymore. Yeah. Well, if the media allows the climate wars to be over, you know, Bowen said the climate wars are over, or Albanese, I can't remember, it was a kind of one of those, oh, you know, relief moments. But if the climate wars are over, what story do you want them to tell us? Because I think a lot of people do not know just how big it is. Well, the, the, the critical thing is really, I think, to tell an economic story. 
Um, you know, solar and wind in Australia produce energy, typically up until very recently, at, at about one third the cost of coal fired power stations, right? One third the cost. We're not talking about 2% cheaper or 5% cheaper. We're talking about one third the cost, like, like dramatically cheaper, less than half the price, right? Now, what we've just witnessed is an energy crisis playing out in Australia Be because of uh, because we've invested in this so-called gas-led recovery. Do you remember, Vivian? This was the big thing that the federal government's put billions of dollars into, really increased our dependency on gas, and gas prices internationally have gone absolutely through the roof. Now you're talking about solar and gas producing at around $40 per megawatt hour, and the gas-fired power stations producing at over $300 per megawatt hour. So it's not even... So, so once people know this is the cheapest form of electricity, and this is the electricity that the whole world is demanding in embedded products in steel, in zinc and aluminium, then we actually are at the right place in history at the right time and in the right geography. We have the best renewable resources. This is about the reindustrialization of our economy, attract, attracting heavy industry and, and energy intensive industry to this country, employing tens of thousands of Australians and producing the cleanest and cheapest products that we export to the world. So it's a really, really bright future. It's based on economics and it's, it's happening in real today. Yeah. Well, um, you know, lots of think tanks have been putting out reports about how this will happen. And there, as you say, we've got rid of the main obstructionists, but there's still fossil fuel money coming in, and that's part of that corruption. But the scale of this energy transition and the upskilling of the workers, it does look colossal to me. And I have done interviews with people saying we just haven't got the workers. And for a long time, the renewable uh, wind and solar industry were saying we, we just haven't got the right settings, government settings, to make us invest in this big thing including export of energy. But what questions could the media ask, do you think, that would help us understand the scale of this and what's needed? Well, the, the surprising story is the bottom-up transformation of the energy market, right? A lot of planners thought about energy as being, you know, rooftop solar and batteries and electric vehicles as just being like a, a little tiny footnote, kind of something that was a fringe activity that happened somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And now in many markets, it makes up more than 30% of generation in different states and territories. In yeah. some states and territories, it makes up 100% of, of, our, of our generation today, yeah. right? So, so, so this is something that, that's happening from the bottom up as much as it's happening from the top down. Down. And so, yes, we, you know, and, and this is going to, Vivian, this is going to be the transformation over the next decade is going to be like the, the industrial revolution. That's the scale and magnitude of change we're talking about for the whole of our society and for the whole of the economy. But the thing is, it's going to happen 10 times faster than the industrial revolution happened. Mm -hmm. So this is the decade where everything changes, everything. Electrification of transport. We electrify everything. We cut off gas. We completely transform our economy and so yes that you know we're going but the good news is we can respond we've seen that industry can ramp up if if the programs are put in place 
things like the, the, the federal government's 10,000 apprenticeship program, so 10,000 free apprenticeships for skilled people in this sector, then we can make the transition, but it doesn't happen by accident. We need that plan. We need the leadership of governments, both federal and state, to actually um, make it as cheap and quick as possible. Yeah, well, lots of listeners will have read that book by Saul Griffith, The, the Switch, and he really does, he does focus on that household level and local industry level and manufacturing here and not, he doesn't put too much hope on hydrogen and, you know, he's, he's a, a thought leader there, but maybe the time has come for that, but I think it's with where we need the media to talk it up and to not necessarily to advocate for it, you know, they can take either side, but the to not go down, yeah, as you say, a rabbit hole over nuclear or something, you know, just get with what is already happening and ask the questions. I don't think it's easy. I don't think it will be easy. I know you're a great optimist, but I think it must involve a lot of hard. Look how COVID, how hard it was for COVID. Look at the workers in the hospitals and the schools who've really fallen by the wayside now um, because it was impossible to even just do a plain and ordinary pandemic. I mean, I think renewable energy is a bigger thing than that. Yeah, and, and there's, there's no doubt that the, you know, that the forces, the, the vested interests around coal and gas, and particularly gas in Australia, are very substantial. They, these are global networks. You know, these are very powerful industries. They are, they are fighting tooth and nail to hold on to every dollar of revenue they can as they kind of slip away. And so I, I don't underestimate, you know, the scale of the, of the, the opponents that we have, but I am heartened Vivian, by the people of Australia. And so don't underestimate voices like your own voice. This is about like community media to actually get the, the, the message out there. I would say to you that more people are engaging and listening and tuning in and saying, what rot? What rubbish, what utter rubbish when they when they hear it from the other side, they're seeing through it. And we're seeing that in election results. And I think we'll see that continue. So in a sense, we will prevail. Um, uh, and uh, but but we are up against formidable odds. Okay, well, look for homeowners. Let's go. I want to look at the the low level of the just the average homeowner, and then at the big export level. For homeowners, what's the new story you want to tell? I think the new government is firming up the grid. They're putting a lot of money into the grid and rewiring the nation, and they're offering community batteries. And I want to know. Uh, so people who live in apartments can get clean energy. Tell us what it will be like. What are the advantages for people just at the domestic level? Yeah, well, well a couple of things that I'm thinking about at the moment. The first one is cut the gas. So, so gas used to be about, in the Australian market, about $6 a kilojoule. When we started to export it, it went to $9 or $12 a kilojoule. And today it's sitting at $300 a kilojoule. Right. That is the magnitude of, the, of, of the, the problem with gas. Now, the thing is that Russia cannot take away Australia's sunshine or wind, right? Russia does not have that capacity, right? Russia was able to put gas prices up to $300 a kilojoule, right? That, that was the effective outcome. And so we need to embrace and actually start to say, let's cut the gas. You can do space heating, with heat pumps and hydronic hot water systems or very efficient reverse cycle air conditioners. So you can do and live a very comfortable life powered by 
renewable energy. You can heat your water, your hot water, with heat pump technology or directly driven PV electric hot water system. You can actually cook in, on your cooktop on, on induction cooktops. You can effectively cut the gas to your home and business, get rid of all of those emissions and save yourself an absolute fortune, still have exactly the same standard of living that you have today. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, probably more comfortable. And it's not subject to petro dictators dictators from overseas kind of you know calling the shots so that's that's something that i'm very very interested in seeing people you know, that people do well i want to know about like apartment dwellers because people always say this is a, a problem and chris bowen said i was at a forum where i live and he said we're giving a you know a, a big battery to bondi as specific as that and apparently 60 percent of the people in bondi are living in apartments so how's that going to change so, so we, we have several members that focus specifically on this area. So one of it is net virtual metering. So it means you don't have to have the solar system on your apartment block. You can actually contract with somebody that has a solar system remote to you and actually do an offset of your metering arrangements. That is all technically possible. And oh. so it means people shouldn't be constrained about the fact that they don't have access to a rooftop that they control. That, that's going to be really important. So we have members that do that peer-to-peer -peer trading right now today in Australia. It's real and it's being rolled out. The other one is access to electric vehicle charging. So very difficult if you live in a big apartment block, you've got limited parking, how do you get access to that? So these are all things that are going to be, you know, be, be really important. But the good news is there are technical and financial solutions to these things. They are, they are being rolled out and we can make it so that one, everybody gets access and two, nobody gets left behind that we have programs for low-income people, for example, that don't have the upfront capital to install solar or batteries or electric vehicle charging, that, that we, we, we through, through financial models, allow them to access the technology and pay it back over a long period of time so their savings they make are greater than the repayment rate that they're doing. So they're saving money at the same time as, as switching to renewables. Okay, the yeah. biggest, the big picture then is um, the, us becoming an exporter of renewable energy. We're so far we're a superpower in gas exports. I think um, shortly after Saudi Arabia becoming a renewable energy superpower. I think a lot of people haven't really got a grip on what that looks like. Yeah, sure. Let, let me give you one one tangible example for people. A company called Sun Metals. They're a Korean company, and they they refine zinc. They refine other metals as well, but refined zinc is a big one. And what they've, what they've figured out is that refining zinc is a very energy intensive process and energy prices around the world are very high. So they actually move their zinc refining to just outside of Townsville in Queensland and they power the zinc refining through a really big solar farm. So they're using Australian sunshine to create the energy that, 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 that refines the zinc and then they export the zinc. They've said that by 2025, all of their metal production will be driven by renewable energy. And that's because it's the cheapest energy. It's also the cleanest energy. So the emissions in that zinc, zero emissions, right, from the smelting process. Now think about Australia. We dig up minerals and we send them overseas. We basically get big tractors and we dig up essentially dirt. I mean, I'm over-exaggerating, but essentially dirt, put it onto a boat and then send it overseas. And overseas, they do all the value adding. 
right? They actually then create the steel and they create the aluminium and they create the other things that is used in the construction, build cars, build aircraft, all of that around the world, right? Build batteries. Now, we have the resources. We also have access to the, to the world's cheapest electricity. If you put a solar panel in Queensland or Western Australia or outback New South Wales, even Northern, Northern Victoria, that solar panel will produce up to 2.6 times more energy than the exact same solar panel in Germany, anywhere in Germany, or in the UK, or in Japan, or in South Korea. These places don't have access to the same solar resources that we have. They don't have access to land. They don't have access to the infrastructure, the ports, the rail lines that allow you to do that and actually export things to market. We do. It's called the Pilbara, right? It's called, you know, the, the north of, of Queensland. That's what we do. That's what our economy is not completely built on, but it's a big, important foundation of our economy. Now, imagine this. We take all of those metals, we value add here using the world's cheapest electricity as an input source, means we can outcompete anybody in the world. Think about all those manufacturing jobs that currently reside in Germany, in Kentucky, and in Shanghai, and actually bringing those back so that they're actually happening here, then you think about how we employ Australians for the long term and drive a benefit right throughout our economy by value adding and actually reaping the benefits for the Australian economy. That's what renewable energy superpower is all about. Well, as you say, it's a ground up, you know, from these industries and thinkers up. I don't see anyone in Parliament talking like that yet, but we need them to put in the regulations to make it, for example, to protect First Nations people. It's not just empty land. We're not going back to terra nullius. And I know you're very well sensitive about that. So how are we going to get, again, the journalists, the media, the story? Who's going to tell the story of how that will happen? A good example is Andrew Forrest from uh, Fortescue future industries, right? So one of the, you know, Twiggy Forest, right? One of the big mining billionaires. And, and when he sat down and looked at this, he said, holy dooly, you know, we, this, is, this changes everything. This actually means that, that by harnessing renewables, we could, we could, he personally is thinking, we could actually grow the most profitable company in the world because others haven't seen the opportunity yet. Others are not moving yet. Others don't have an imagination. Others don't see the opportunity. So what he's what he's done is he's focused his whole business on exploiting this opportunity, being the first to market, and actually developing these projects, not just in Australia, but in other places around the world where they have access to great renewable resources, places like Chile, or you know, um, uh, or other jurisdictions. So so the early movers, the smart money, get it. They're moving, they're just doing it. And what will happen is it just takes time for the others to catch up. And a good example, you know, was the big battery in South Australia. Nobody had an imagination, firstly, that it could be done, or secondly, that it would really add huge value. Uh, until Elon Musk and Mike Cannon-Brooks made a bet on Twitter, and less than 100 days later, there's the big battery. Now, a couple of years later, and people are saying that was that is one of the most significant assets on the grid, and gee, couldn't batteries really solve our problems? Well, no joke, Sherlock, you know, is what I would say, right? This has been self-evident. This is not this is not some mystery. And so, yes, that, that is happening. It will continue to happen. The transition will happen. And, and the others look like, 
yesterday's men and women. They're left behind, right? And they're left behind commercially and politically. And that's the transition underway. It makes me a bit nervous having this all run by billionaires, though, because I feel that we do, there's such a role for government and for the community. You know, it's always been these local communities who said, okay, this gas is going to frack our Great Artesian Basin. It's the local people who know that. Aboriginal people who say this is this is not this is not legal. This is trampling on our rights. Um, that has got to happen. That that it's not the same sort of gold rush mentality. I know it's exciting for you, no, well, I completely agree. And the good news is those communities that are taking action, it means there's a really sustainable economic model behind what they're doing. So, you know, because if you can harness that and then actually so it feeds on itself and reinforces, then those opportunities are absolutely there. And they are absolutely the groups that we should empower, be empowering, right? You know, as, as you say, all very well for, for, for the kind of the billionaires to make the move. I suppose my point is, um, the, the environment is right for this to happen. Those that want to make the switch and engage it, I think, can be very successful in this. And whether that's a local cooperative, whether it's First Nations people making, making the move, or whether it's large companies, but ultimately that's good for all of us and it's good for the planet. Right. All right, well, let's finish. Now, uh, just would you like to say a word to the climate movement? Because our listeners, a lot of them are taking all sorts of climate action and all its, you know, climate the climate crisis is so multi-pronged, isn't it? It's bigger than an octopus. You know, there's so many sectors in it. But you're a big sector of it, the energy, electricity sector. But what do you want to say to the climate activists who you hear about in the news a little bit? Um, well, my, my, my message would be this. Um, just as Don Chip said from the Democrats, it's, it's incumbent on all of us to keep the bastards honest. And that doesn't matter who's in government, right, whether it's Labor or Liberal or anybody else. Ultimately, we have to continue to strive to push the, you know, our federal and our state politicians to do more, to go faster, to be more ambitious, because the climate crisis is upon us and we have to transition and move really quickly. Everything from waste, the reef, uh, recycling, plastic, you know, so many aspects of, of, of our world. So, so uh, what, what I would say is, you know, uh, enjoy the win, right? We, this is a big step forward where we've come from, but it's not the end. And, and, and now's the time to, to really focus and, you know, support in a positive way, but also continue to push and, and make sure we go further and faster. Thank you, John. So that was John Grimes, CEO of the Smart Energy Council. Thank you, John. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. Dominic Geiger is the media coordinator for Lock the Gate Alliance, and he's in Brisbane. Welcome, Dominic. Well, look, Lock the Gate Alliance has great respect around the country for just standing firm against uh, more coal seam gas and coal. And your me media releases are peppered with words like frack-pocked wastelands, you know, and billions of litres of water needed for new coal and gas projects. And many of the people I speak to um, outside my interviewing don't seem to know about that. It's not really front of mind, those remote areas where terrible things are happening to aquifers and to and to communities and to landscapes, but it's sort of not known in the big cities. And I, 
I wonder where can the establishment media do better for you to represent those places that are a bit out of sight, out of mind? Yeah, so I guess um, what you just mentioned then about the um, water situation brings to mind um, a situation in the Kimberley right now where um, a US outfit called Black Mountain um, have uh, updated their plans just recently to very categorically state that they're going to require 2 billion litres of water for a 20 frack well um, exploratory operation. And what you see, in particularly in the coal seam gas fields of Queensland, is once a um, company gets uh, a foothold somewhere, uh, they expand like a horrible rash across the landscape. You know, we, we now in inland Queensland have at least 8,600 producing gas wells, and it's pretty easy for anyone to just go on Google Earth and look at the area kind of north of Broma, southwest of Dolby, and see what those gas wells do to the landscape. And it's pretty horrific. Um, and the impact on the water um, beneath the gr ground is even worse. Um, so, you know, we're talking at the moment about uh, a prediction of 730 or so water bores relied on by farmers going dry as a result of the coal seam gas industry's expansion in Queensland. And that's not our figures. Those are the figures used by the government itself and the department charged with monitoring the impact of this industry. Um, but to answer your question about what, what the media perhaps can do a, a bit better, you know, I, I've got great respect for the journos who really covering this and, th and there are a few of them or perhaps a lot of them but um you know for every um great story that's written about it there is a story or a, a tv report where um there are just some really basic perhaps nitpicky things but things that i consider really important such as um what you see is when a gas industry rolls into town or rolls into a region all of a sudden the uh, communications around a particular area uh, change and they start referring to the region as a basin rather than a community, rather than a, a district. You know, it, in, in a perfect world, um, we'd be using the, um, the Aboriginal names of the place a lot more, but it, it goes so far beyond that. You know, we, for example, in Queensland, the region where coal seam gas has really exploded, um, you know, growing up, I always called it the Western Downs or the Darling Downs. But you start to see in uh, a lot of media reports, it starts being referred to as the Surat Basin. Um, now, it's been really interesting to see that take place as the gas industry has looked elsewhere across the country, including the Northern Territory, where suddenly the Barclay region or, you know, Catherine uh, region uh, suddenly starts getting called the Beetaloo. I mean, the Beetaloo is a gas industry term, and it's part of a concerted effort by the industry basically to dehumanise a place um, and they're doing the same thing in the Kimberley now they're referring to it as the Canning Basin and unfortunately some media not all uh, and some journalists not all uh, are using that terminology and it as I said uh, basically just dehumanizes a place and if you want people in the city to uh, understand the implications of a process of, of a project you really should referring to it as the place that people know you know people have terrific connections with the Kimberley and, and the beautiful landscape there, but, um, and, and similar to the Darling Downs and the farmland there, um, but when you start calling it basin, uh, it removes that uh, association that people have with it, and it only serves the gas industry's uh, objectives to mine the place. Yeah, well, I'm guilty of that. I mean, I've, I was very proud of sort of 
to my listeners, I felt putting the Beetaloo Basin on the map, you know, explaining that Catherine's there and and we interviewed people from up there. But that story just goes out of the news all the time. And it's I would totally be happy to to call it by its proper name. I get it that, yeah, by calling it a basin, you're just saying it's already industrialised. It's already the geography of that place is only for what you can get out of it. So that's I, right. And I mean, it's, it's certainly important to refer to um, you know, the basin when, you, when you're talking about specifically what the gas companies are, are trying to do there for, for some reporters. But, you know, when you are just talking in general terms about a region, uh, you know, it's not a basin. It's, it's like communities and people and farms and, you know, cultural heritage sites, incredible um, ecosystems. And, yeah, as I said, just referring it to it as a basin. Yeah. Uh, makes the reader or the listener or the viewer just forget that basically. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking too. It's got a previous colonised history. I mean, it's a colonised land, once over and now recolonised for these mega gas and coal. Well, not so much coal anymore, but gas developments. And I looked at the photos on your press release, and you have pictures of farmers with armfuls of carrots or cotton or perched on a massive rock with a huge sign saying stop coal and calcium gas. But I don't think the TV is really in touch with those people and those places in the same way as you are and the other campaigning groups are. But another big issue, of course, is the fact that, um, and you know, this, this may not have a direct impact on how stories are covered, but Seven Group um, you know, has a partial stake in Beach Energy, which is of course a gas company. Now in um, WA, we've had, um, some journalists who work for Seven Group, um, you know, c cover um, the stories that we'd like them to cover. So, um, you know, it's not as simple as there being a conflict of interest and it translating into the editorial line. But, uh, you know, when your company has a financial interest in a fossil fuel company, there's certainly some sort of implicit pressure not to go too hard on um, those gas companies that they're involved in you know th that storytelling is being told in a video format that's that's only online that's not necessarily through uh free-to-air television anymore um and you know perhaps it doesn't need to be perhaps the uh impact that those online stories are having is um sufficient to uh see the sort of change that you know we saw at the at the ballot box for the recent federal election i think probably the the issue there is it's impossible to treat media as some kind of homogenous blob like there is there is an incredible difference between um you know the various media outlets in australia and and how they um cover the issue of climate and um we've got a you know, media while, monopoly haven't we we've got 60 well, percent of the media's murdoch i mean in queensland I, I don't like, know how many papers you can even get i know but like what, what I'm saying is that, sure, Murdoch may own um, the majority of the papers, but increasingly, and, you know, I, I, I need to stress that even though the editorial line in a lot of Murdoch papers is not particularly fantastic at all in terms of the climate, there are still some journos who work within those publications that are doing an incredible job uh, under the circumstances. But um, as I was kind of alluding to before, I don't think it necessarily matters uh, who owns the newspapers anymore because, um, and as we saw in the 
recent election, the newspapers out there can take a particular line, but I don't think it is anywhere near as influential as it used to be. Um, and, you know, it's, it's upsetting because, uh, you know, particularly for people who are a little bit older um, and not as online as, as younger people, it, it may be all that they're reading and all that they're seeing. But I think for the vast majority of, of the Australian public now, they are almost certainly getting their news online and the online options for how people consume their news are much more varied. Um, and certainly if, you know, you, you want to read something or, or watch something online that uh, has a little bit more um, objectivity uh, than some of the more conservative outlets. Well, I hope so. I hope it plays out in, in terms of Australia's climate response. But every time I see a new mine approved or, you know, all this offshore in Western Australia gas, I think, oh, heavens, you know, the, the activist groups are not armed enough to take it on or not enough people have joined activist groups. Uh, that's just my feeling. It, 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 we're so, I feel we're backward here. I mean, I watch the French news and they are so much on the front's foot about climate. They have climate in every TV emission, you know, so I think, oh. Hmm. Sure. And I mean, that's, that's probably a good point to make as well. I mean, when um, fracking companies tried to roll out in France, the public got together and just said, no, we don't want it. And hmm. there remains a um, moratorium on oops, effectively fracking is not allowed in mm, France. That's right. Um, and yeah, perhaps you're right. I mean, you know, I, I used to live in France, actually. Oh. And the, the level of engagement with the public uh, and the level of respect for the media uh, is something that we in Australia could probably only dream of. I mean, you know, you, um, the the French are notorious for their their willingness to take to the streets and burn cars and and, and, whatever. Oh, yes. and you know perhaps they're we well informed. They're well informed. You know, there's a lot. But that, of they are. They are. Yeah. And there's there's a cultural element there that that just doesn't necessarily exist in Australia. But well, it's it's hugely contentious now. It's with the Ukraine war in Europe that you know the Russian gas has you know become highly the highly political issue and here now the we need gas and we can't we haven't got a reservation policy for domestic gas and you know that's what the media is all discussing now what do you think the way forward is what do you want to see with gas it's a similar answer to any energy crisis that we're facing at the moment is you know renewable energy is cheaper um, than fossil fuels it's easier to build it has less of the impacts of course uh, we don't want to make the same mistakes with renewable energy infrastructure and mining that we have with gas and coal so there needs to be better planning systems in place by state and federal governments mm. um, but at the end of the day um, we are in a climate crisis and you know the shift towards wholly renewable energy uh, based economies is you know extraordinarily important right now fantastic Thank you very much, Dominic, for talking to us. Um, Thank you. I wish you good luck with your, with your work there. Um, that was Dominic Geiger, Media Coordinator for Lock the Gate Alliance up in Brisbane. Thanks, Dominic. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. Fahima Baruhisham is with us now from ARC, 
I want to ask her about the media coverage of climate change. She is active on social media and I feel she might know why voters are concerned about climate change while the media establishment seem to ignore it. So welcome Fahima. What sort of climate action were you involved in during the election? I was doing a few things. So during the election, I was um, ARC's lead campaigner in Wentworth. And I was also doing a lot of behind the scenes communications, um, in particular with um, social media. So social media is, I guess, the primary way that ARC local groups advertise our actions and sort of tell each other what we've been up to. And um, it's an opportunity as well to let elected MPs and political candidates to know what, what we're asking of them. Because, you know, you can tag um, these people on, you know, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or where, wherever these people have a, an account. Yeah, and it's, it's really, really interesting. Like the fact that um, the ABC Climate Compass said that climate change was the number one voting issue for a majority of people. But throughout the election campaign, as you sort of pointed out, um, climate change didn't really break through the mainstream media. We know that there's a vested interest. You know, there's vested interests, coal money. We talk about the state capture, really, of parliament, and I think of the established media. So beneath that radar, you think like those interests can't or they don't operate so much among friends twittering or connecting with each other that way. Is that a freer environment for comment? You know, people can say it how it is. Yeah, I I believe so, because I think local climate organisations really learn from each other on social media, especially on Twitter. ARC was, was part of the Together We Can Alliance. You know, we, we had that like big yellow core flutes everywhere. And um, it was great to see what other Alliance members were up to during the election and sort of like collaborate and say, kind of like send messages to each other like, hey, I'm doing this event on Saturday. Can you bring your crew along? Mm-hmm. So it's a great, almost informal way of um, organizing and also like supporting each other. You get the youth perspective, you get the the coal community perspective from a perspective from people of faith, the health angle, the disability angle, and how how inf- uh, how it impacts sort of like First Nations um, human rights and so on. So it's like you can, in a way, kind of explore the climate issue in like this broad and deep way that sort of like, because like sometimes when you read um, an article in traditional print or a, an op-ed, it's sort of like, well, you, you come to realize that that's one opinion mm. or, or one view. That's true. And and there was a theme of uh, people in parliament being out of touch. You know, our democracy has been undermined. They're out of touch. And that example, the ALP lost that seat in Fowler, Western Sydney, and the people there said you should you should have known that air lifted in wasn't going to represent us, and so there wasn't mm-hmm. enough consultation in the traditional way of consulting. But I think I heard all the teal candidates and the Greens did a lot of door knocking. They just went literally face to face, knocked on people's doors and talked to them, and had those community forums. I saw you at a couple of community forums, and I thought those were also ways where you could hear. Un, un, unmediated what the public want and what they want to hear. The community forums gave us that chance, but do you think journalists 
asks the same questions. You know, the, the, I come back to mainstream media, like not just print media, but TV and radio. Do you think they ask the same questions as the public? I mean, do you think they're connected, the, the journalists are connected to the public? Yeah, um, I think early on in, in the election campaign, journalists seems to be jostling for kind of like asking polit politicians all these gotcha questions that have yeah. nothing to do with policy. And I think Adam Bent very kind of smartly broke that sort of like pattern by saying, Google it, <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> And when it comes to the actual problem of climate change, it's just a word to them. I think it's just a word, climate change. Oh, we have to do the climate issue. And they, they narrow it down into fossil fuels or renewable energy or those things. They talk about the targets all the time. But none of them seem to talk about it like we do as an absolute real knowledgeable thing that we have to do everything we possibly can as soon as possible all of us but they, they don't have that feeling about their questions it's just about you know no. what can we get away with yeah and i think um because i i don't i don't know what the mechanism is that sort of like forces journalists into this kind of like line of questioning that sort of like oh we have to um, this is what the International Energy Agency says, this is what the Paris Accord says, but like very seldom the question considers bigger questions around solidarity and justice. You know, ARC's work with um, Stop Adani, for example, currently like we're highlighting the impact of coal exports on other communities around the world, particularly, uh, particularly in India and in Bangladesh. I haven't seen many of those kinds of articles on, on the ABC or, um, you know, the channel numbers. <laughs> no, I don't either. And, and I, even on this radio, I often interview people in other countries like that, like Bangladesh, even like New Zealand and France, changing their democratic access to the people in parliament with citizens' assemblies. And I think, well, and the Extinction Rebellion in England, you know, breaking up shareholders' meetings. I think, well, I wish, I wish the mainstream media would be reporting on this. But apart from anything, don't they feel terrible about climate change? And this will be one way of feeling better, but also because it's an, a kind of an exciting story. All those things I've met up with you, you know, with various little rallies and big rallies and events and forums. It's kind of attractive, isn't it? It's pleasant to be with people who are who are so positive. Yeah. And I think like probably, I guess what what tends to sort of get picked up by media are yeah hu human human interest stories although i could cynically say it's human suffering stories so then you know the the question around ethics like who's um you know using black and brown bodies to um to sort of sell their suffering to a wealthy audience for the organizations um yeah i don't know um yeah i guess like by using social media i think activists can control the narrative yeah um because like you know you can send media releases uh and it will get chopped up by the editors and kind of like missing missing the point like missing um key things like who you are and what you stand for why why you're protesting on the day so it's important to be able to um yeah get get your own story straight when um because like once you send out the media release your um your story is at the mercy of somebody else who don't um, have aligned values. Yes, yeah. you've hit it on the head with that. It's the different values, isn't it? Oh, well, well, I, I, I'm still sort of too old to go into social media, but I'm glad you're, you're finding it such a, 
a, a world, a resourceful world, you know, and, and I've seen with this election, I think that's shown that there's been a whole lot of other communication going on way below, beneath what the ABC and the newspapers are saying, and much less the sky yeah. after dark, you know, all of that. <laughs> I don't even yeah. look at that, but yeah. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, well, it, interestingly, um, I, I just sort of um, share this tidbit of information. So the people at Together We Can sort of crunch the numbers of like social media engagement during the election period. And I think collectively the movement got over 35 million engagement on, on like um, Twitter, I believe. And that's, you know, that's that's huge. <laughs> it's a lot. And when you compare like how, how little of that makes it out to the traditional media. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> yeah. And, and on election day, the um you know you get the the hashtags like hashtag um Ospol was trending throughout the day which is predictable but what was also trending throughout the day is um climate change so 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 many people use the the phrase climate change in their tweets consistently hourly throughout the day so it's definitely a much livelier conversation online than it is sort of like um in real life Wow. Oh, I'm pleased to hear this. this is, I knew you knew something I didn't know. <laughs> well, you know, know. Lots of things I don't know. Thank you very much, Fahima. Uh, I think we heard about from Fahima earlier, listeners, when she went up to the Tour de Carmichael, which was washed out, as I've reported to you. It was washed out by floods. This is reality hitting all of us. And uh, But Fahima, you said that they're going to have their anniversary soon. Could you just say one or two words about that? Um, yeah, sure. So Tour de Carmichael was like a, a week-long cycling tour on Wangan and Jungleingu country uh, in central Queensland. The organisers have had to make the difficult call to postpone it because the roads were closed due to kind of rains and floods. So yeah, just keep an eye out on an another announcement of a big celebration at Wadnangu at the end of August to celebrate their one-year reoccupation of Yalan, this really incredible resistance against um, Adani's Carmichael Coal Project. Thank you. FreeCR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Thanks to everyone who's donated so far to 3CR's Radiothon and dedicating a small amount of money to the Climate Action Show. It's about the only feedback we get. We get occasionally emails, but we don't really know how our audience receives these programs and we'd love to know from you. Small donations, very welcome. Tonight's guests were John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council, Dominic Geiger from Lock the Gate Alliance and Fahima Badrul-Hisham from the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change and also to Christine Milne, former leader of the Greens, who this year have their greatest number of federal MPs ever. Thank you to John Hewson and the Saturday Paper 
and Aketan Joshi at Renew Economy. And a big thank you to Radio 3CR. They support us in bringing you this free radio and all the hundreds of campaigns and campaigners for climate action that we bring you each week. Please phone now or later on 039419-8377. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Well, I'm John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council. I'm here to say that Community Radio, 3CR, what an awesome role you play in getting the truth out to people who need to know at a counterpoint to the mainstream media. Keep up the great work.